22 today, Jeremiah chapter 22, and this is a very stimulating text. I hope you find it to be so. Here's what it says, Jeremiah 22, we'll start in verse 1. That's a good place to begin. I do hope you are able to attend the Christmas get-together on the 11th. Uh, that is a great time. We enjoy each other's company, have a great fellowship. Class organizers always put together a wonderful opportunity for us to come. And if um, the expense is prohibitive for you, you speak to one of our class leaders. We want you to come. So please don't uh, feel um, excluded because times are a little tight. We want, we want to rejoice together. Uh, the Lord Jesus, who always was, was enfleshed, probably not on December 25th, but it doesn't matter. Let's take a day and remember the incarnation, and so we gather together and rejoice with one another and enjoy each other's company. So December 11th, across the street, youth building, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, you're in Genesis, tw- uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 22, are you there? Here we go. Look, thus says the Lord, to whom? To Jeremiah, way to go. Thus says the Lord to Jeremiah, go down to the house of the king of Judah. Go down, meaning in elevation. His prior preaching venue had been in the elevated area of the temple in Jerusalem. You could go to the area on which the temple once stood in Jerusalem today, an elevated area. God says, now, Jeremiah, change the venue of your ministry. Go down, in this case, to the house or palace of the king of Judah. And it is just that, quite a palace. We know where it was located today. You can see the ruins thereof even today. It wasn't only this king's residence. It was the residence of all those who were kings in Judah in this day. Magnificent marble, gold, and cedars from Lebanon. Absolutely a beautiful place in which the king of Judah lived. God said, Jeremiah, go, because you're going to preach to him and others in his administration. So it says, verse 2, say to them, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne, you and your servants, and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who's been robbed from the power of the oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and don't shed innocent blood in this place. Folks, these are the bare minimum requirements of government. Government, you know, is God's idea. Bad government is man's idea. Government, as an agency of the preservation of what's right and good, and as an agent of God to protect the citizenry, is a divine institution. The church is a divine institution. So, too, is government. And these are the bare, essential requirements of good government represent the moral character of God, justice, righteousness. Deliver those who are oppressed. Don't mistreat. Don't do violence to those who are the most vulnerable members of society. And so you have some representative groupings here. You have the stranger, and you have the orphan, you have the widow. The stranger, that's a person who's not yet a citizen of the land, but who's come into it. And he's looking for help and for shelter, for rootedness, for inclusion, for assimilation. Do not do injustice to him. He's someone who's very vulnerable to mistreatment and exploitation. Don't do it, God says to the government. Second, the orphan, understandable, a defenseless one without parental provision or protection. And the widow. Widows needed today, for sure, in various ways. In this day, even more so because a lady's uh, sustenance economically was very much a function of her connection to her husband. Now he's gone. What does she do? It's important that the government not exploit, not take advantage, not abandon. 
So it's not just these groups who the government is to respond to in a just and righteous manner, but these are representative groups of people who are most vulnerable and needy. Notice verse 3 is a reflection of your father's character. Think about it. You, if you're a Christian, you have a dad you can really be proud of. Your dad is interested in these things. You have a dad you can look up to. Your most high God, your Abba Father, is interested in justice and righteousness. He is against mistreatment, exploitation, and all the rest. And he expects government to represent these values as well. For if you men, verse 4, will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house, sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. There will be a perpetuation of your rulership, of your human human government. Uh, Your son will follow you, your son after you. There will be a line of descent. Uh, Things will take place. There will be a flow. It will be uninterrupted. Human government do things well, and there will be a perpetuation of your rulership. But there's an alternative to it all. Verse 5. If... You will not obey these words, I swear by myself. Now here God is invoking his own character to authenticate and affirm what he's about to say. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, this house, this government, this dynasty, this line of royal governing authority will become a desolation. For thus says the Lord, Concerning the house of the king of Judah, you are like Gilead to me and like the summit of Lebanon. These are places in the Middle East characterized by trees. You know of the cedars of Lebanon and in the country of Lebanon, highly forested area in this day more so, quite beautiful, imported uh, into Israel, exported all over the world in this day. You know the cedars of Lebanon. And then Gilead, the mountains of Gilead in Israel. You could visit it today. Beautiful trees, highly forested area. God said, I can look at you this way, yet most assuredly I will make you a wilderness like cities which are not inhabited. So he's speaking to government. And he's saying, governmental authority submit to mine. If you do so, you will flourish. If not, you will be extinguished. And so it says in verse 7, I will set apart destroyers against you. In this case, it's a specific reference to the Babylonians who are coming from the north. I will set apart destroyers against you, each with his own weapons. They will cut down your choicest cedars and throw them on the fire. You know what that verse tells me? That verse tells me that the God we worship is sovereign entirely, wholly, completely, irreversibly. He, the sovereign Most High God, has the capacity to make use even of destroyers to accomplish his own end. Our God who you pray to and know personally and who knows you by name is the one who is the Most High God. He orchestrates international affairs. Please don't settle for lower level authority when you can go to the Most High God. I memorize a verse of scripture which I shared with you and I commend it to your own memory. It'll help you sleep at night. <laughs> it's Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. You can bypass elected officials and you can go to the court of highest appeal and you can say, Oh God, my father, turn the heart of the king, the president, the prime minister, the chancellor, whatever. Turn the heart of the king 
so as to accomplish your purposes. He can use any nation for his purposes, even evildoers, even destroyers to discipline his own people. And you have a personal relationship with him. I emphasize the point because uh, we should not be pleased with what's going on in our day. But please, don't find yourself in emotional disarray over it either. It betrays you don't believe your God is sovereign. He is sovereign. I didn't say sit around and do nothing. I didn't say that. I just said don't be filled with anxiety, have sleepless nights, and go around like a dried up prune. Good night. The commander-in-chief happens to be our personal savior. Good night. It's his administration that we put confidence in, nobody else's. And you have entree into the office of the Most High God anytime you choose to pray to him. Think about that. So God says that. Now verse 8, many nations will pass by this city and they'll say to one another, why has the Lord done thus to this great city? And then they will answer, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed down to other gods and served them. Of course, this has immediate reference to Israel. No question about it. But by application to any nation of the world. And folks, in verses 8 and 9, you have what the Bible says about political science. So if you're studying political science in university now or ever have, uh, you can summarize the whole thing. Here's the science of politics, verses 8 and 9. Listen. God ordained human government. When human government does not submit to God, human government um, will deteriorate and be in disarray. That's political science 101. When human government is simply an agent, which is simply an agent of Almighty God, turns from him to worship false gods, it will be consequenced. You want to have proof? History. You know, I think of a guy like Stalin, for instance. Twelve million people slaughtered at his hands. Twelve. It's an unfathomable twelve million people. In the day, those oppressed and others in the world community undoubtedly would wonder, how will this ever come to an end? How will he be dealt with? How will he be brought down and replaced? Well, he was. And we could give endless lists of oppressive rulers similarly situated. I, I want to tell you, <laughs> human government operates at the behest of Almighty God. And when human government of any ilk uh, turns to false gods and denies God, eventually, when that human government has ceased to serve its purpose before God, it will be extinguished. History has shown that again and again and again. I didn't say take it easy because it's quite a challenging day. I'm just saying don't be filled with anxiety about the day. Your God reigns. He is sovereign, not in part, in whole. Rest in him. Your father hates injustice and oppression, and he will deal with it. He deals with human, he deals with church leaders because we operated his behest and he deals with political leaders. They do too. Church and government are divine institutions. They don't honor deity. Deity, the one true God, will deal with both. He does. History has proven that. Then he says, God says, verse 10, don't weep for the dead or mourn for him. Instead, weep continually for the one who goes away because he'll never return to see his native land. God says, you know, typically we grieve the loss of someone who's gone before us, particularly a loved one. It's normal. It's natural. God says, I got to tell you, there's a people group you ought to feel more sorry for. It's not those who have passed. It's those who've been carried out of the land, the holy land, and will never see it again. In fact, he's going to speak of someone to whom that happened. Now, verse 11, the Lord says in regard to Shalom. Now, Shalom, we read here, is the son of Josiah, who was a king of Judah. This gets a little tricky. Because when you read about the kings of ancient Israel, they have like more than one name. 
So one chapter is talking about a guy by one name. The next chapter is the same guy by a different name, and you have to sort of know this. Otherwise, it throws you real off. So Shalom is one name by which the son of Josiah is known. Just keep that in mind for now. So Josiah ruled as a king of Judah. He was a good one. Unusual. There were not many. He wasn't a, he wasn't a perfect one by no means, but he was a pretty good king. He tore down the high places of false religious worship, stuff like that, tried to call the people back to the true God. So he produced a son named Shalom. It would be great if the son followed in the father's footsteps, but the son did not. Josiah was a good guy, and Shalom was not a good guy. And and, and so uh, Shalom is uh, hearing from God now. Thus says the Lord in regard to Shalom, uh, who is the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who became king in the place of Josiah, his father, who went forth from this place, God says, he'll never, Shalom, he will never return here, but in the place where they led him captive, he'll die. He won't see this land again. Um, so here's what happened. Um, another name for Shalom is Jehoahaz. Your Bible may say that, Jehoahaz. So you got Shalom and you got Jehoahaz, they're the same, same guys. Uh, Josiah's first son, and the way it worked in those days, your son automatically becomes king in your place. How uh, did Josiah's reign come to an end? Um, in about 609, he was killed by uh, the ruler of another nation, Egypt. His name was Pharaoh Necho, Pharaoh the name of the, of the ruler of Egypt. There was conflict in the Middle East. What a surprise. And Pharaoh Necho um, uh, won and uh, killed Josiah. And then Josiah in 609 B.C. was replaced by his wonderful son, Shalom, who reigned for three months. That's it. Three months. What happened then? Pharaoh Necho got disgusted with this guy, too. And was quite powerful. And so Pharaoh Necho departed Shalom, Josiah's son, to Egypt where he died. And that is just what God said. How sovereign is your God? Really, really sovereign. See, if you just stopped with Pharaoh Necho and Shalom and Egypt and Israel, you're... Your perspective is too earthbound. You've got to get above it and say, God, it can work through Pharaoh Nico. He can work his plan through Josiah. He can work through even this, this rotten egg, Shalom. He could just, he can do whatever he wants to do. And God said, this is going to be the consequence upon you. And this, history tells us, was exactly that con, uh, consequence. Now, verse 13 and on is talking about the next king who replaced Shalom, whose name is not mentioned just yet. You'll see who it is in just a second. So you have Josiah. He produced the first son, Shalom, three months. Not good. Deported to Egypt. Died there. Here's his brother in verse 13. We're going to talk about his brother now. Woe to him, the brother, who builds his house, his royal place, without righteousness and his upper rooms without justice who uses his neighbor's services without pay and doesn't give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar, painting it bright red. So after uh, being appointed as king by Pharaoh Necho, Jehoiakim acted like a typical despot. So Josiah's gone. Shalom, his son, uh, rules for three months, is deported by uh, Pharaoh Necho into Egypt and dies there. Pharaoh Necho props up his brother as the new king, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim is just as bad as his brother. And he uses his political office for personal gain. He builds up his land holdings in his palace on the backs of the people who he doesn't even compensate. That's the kind of guy... He was. And so God says to him, verse 15, do you become a king because you're competing in cedar 
You have more cedar from Lebanon than anybody else? Didn't your father, now God poses a comparison between father and son. Father, Josiah, son, Jehoiakim. Didn't your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? And then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy, and then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Well, the son doesn't stack up to the father. He doesn't stand in the comparison. Josiah was a good, righteous guy representing the justice and righteousness of God, but the son is not doing it. And so God says, is this what it means to know me? What does it mean when a leader, a political leader says he knows God? When a political leader has, let's say, a uh, national day of prayer, does that mean he knows God? It might, but not necessarily. When a leader attends the uh, once-a-year prayer breakfast, does that mean he necessarily knows God? When a political candidate puts a little printed material under your door and it lists his biographical information, you know, married to so-and-so for the last 30 years, three children, long-time resident of such-and-such, graduate of whatever school and, uh, you know, regular attender at, and it names a church. Does that mean that candidate for political office necessarily knows God? You know, it could be that all of those invoking the name of God are doing so because they want the vote of God's people. But you don't know for sure that they know God just because they have some profession of identification with him. I'll tell you how you know when a political leader knows God. It's easy. That leader leads as God would have him lead. This is not a mystery. A political leader who claims to know God does more than carry a big old flapping holy Bible to some liberal church in Washington, D.C., you know, a couple Sundays a year when the cameras are rolling. That doesn't mean that leader knows God. You will know that a political leader knows God when that political leader represents the moral character of God. Does abortion represent the moral character of God? Does same-gender marriage represent the moral character of God? Does anti-Christian legislation represent the character of God? Does the protection of (laughs) encroaching Islam in in a nation founded on Judeo-Christian principles so that you can even construct a mosque on the site of terror? Does that reflect the character of God? Does anti-Israel politics reflect the character of God? Talk is cheap. You'll know A leader knows God when a leader leads in a way that reflects the moral character of God. Could I be frank with you? I haven't seen one like that in my day. And not now. So what do I do? Bail out of life? No. My God reigns. I talk to him. You should too. I get above the Pharaoh, Nico, King, Shalom stuff. Go to the court of highest appeal. Oh God, use all this to accomplish your redemptive purposes. Oh God, judge wickedness. Oh God. Preserve righteousness. There is something you could do. Do it. Spiritual weapons for a spiritual battle. So be careful. It's amazing to me how Christians 
can be so naive. Anytime someone identifies with some kind of vague religious thing, you put down your guard. <laughs> a leader knows God when a leader represents godly principles. <clears throat> but it says here, Verse 17, your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain and on shedding innocent blood and on practicing oppression and extortion. Therefore, thus says the Lord in regard to, so here's the name of the king, Jehoiakim. So he's the brother of the last guy. See, he's, he's the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They'll not lament for him, saying, alas, my brother, alas, sister. They won't lament for him. He will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates. So in Jerusalem of old, if an animal died within the gates of the city, you pick up the animal, you throw the animal outside the gate. This arrogant, prideful king who's expecting some state funeral, no way. God says you'll be treated just like an animal, just like a donkey. That's what it says. And so what happened to this character? Well, Jehoiakim reigned for 11 years and died in Jerusalem in 598 B.C., as Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon was approaching the city for conquest, some speculate, we don't know this, this is speculation, that uh, this king was assassinated as a peace offering to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't be so mean to the people. Who knows? Anyway, he died. Now God continues in verse 20, an uh, outcry against the land. See at the end of verse 20 where it says, all your lovers have been crushed. Um, it's lovers only in a metaphorical sense. It means your political allies. Israel had political allies, but in the day, uh, her allies were also coming under conquest. And so essentially God is saying, there will be no one to help you. When God chooses to judge, judgment there will be. Politics, military cannot withstand the judgment of, of Almighty God. And so the text goes on, verse 21, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said I won't listen. Isn't that interesting? Prosperity is not as good as you think it is on an individual or national or international level. I spoke to you when things were going good, but you wouldn't listen. You know what? We ought to praise God for the economic downturn in our situation today. I dare you to. I dare you to praise God for being able to put it to use. The houses aren't selling like they used to and the jobs are not sticking like they used to. And uh, I met with an economist the other day just for kicks because I'm a glutton for punishment and uh, <laughs> asked him if he thought we we're going to pull out. We started talking about increasing national debt and how – did you know you don't own your country anymore? I don't know if you – yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, China, uh, other countries. It's interesting. Um, just the interest <laughs> on it. Um, is absolutely unbelievable. Of all the tax money you and I pay, a decreasing percentage of it is going <laughs> for infrastructure. It's going for debt retirement and, and all kinds of... <laughs> it's amazing. And it keeps going up and up and up because no politician is going to challenge it because you, you won't be electable if you start cutting services, stuff like that. So it could be... I don't want to ruin your day or anything, but... It, it could be that uh, we've passed the point of economic uh, return. It could be that we're not going to get – there will be windows of, uh, you know, I suppose, relief, but it could be that we're not going to be able to, to pull out of this. So here's the deal. Isn't that good? <sighs> because Almighty God who loves us could give us all a chance to stop worshiping the Almighty Dollar finding our peace and confidence in our stock portfolio, and maybe more and more people will cry out to the Most High God. We ought to pray that, folks. We ought to pray that. I'm not sure we ought to be praying, Oh, God, give us a healthy, robust economy. I mean, pray it if you want to, but apparently we don't do too good in prosperity. Apparently we don't do too good. When we think we're invincible economically or militarily, apparently we don't need God. Maybe all this will 
enhance our sense of neediness for God. And maybe it'll provide more of an opportunity for God's people to tell others where real hope is to lie. So anyway, God says when you were prosperous, it didn't go so hot. It says the wind is going to sweep away your shepherds. That means political leaders. And your lovers are going to go into captivity and so on and so forth. Then it goes on in verse 24. Uh, even though Coniah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Okay, so here's the third king in the text after Josiah. The first is this guy, Shalom, his son. Not good, kind of a rotten egg. The second is his brother, Jehoiakim, also a dud. Then here's this, that guy's uh, son, uh, Coniah. Now the problem is he's also called Jeconiah in the Bible and also Jehoiachin. So Jehoiakim had a son named Jehoiachin. I'm sure pronouncing it wrong, but anyway, you got the idea. And God is speaking to him now. And he is saying, listen up. Even though you be a signet ring, I can dump you. What's a signet ring? Well, a person in authority would wear that and heat up wax, put the imprint of the signet ring on it, seal something with it. If it was a document, it would essentially say, this bears no less than the authority of the monarch whose imprint is on it. It was the symbol of the monarch's power and authority, and you better carry out whatever was in that particular letter. So signet ring was a valuable deal. By metaphor, God is saying, Konai, you may think you're uh, essential personnel to me. Uh, nobody is. And if you don't clean up your act, I'll pull you off and discard you, though you think of yourself as my signet ring. That's essentially what God is saying to this character um, over here. And then he says, verse 25, I'm going to give you into the hand of those seeking your life, namely Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. I'm going to hurl you and and your mother into another country and you'll die there. It happened. After another three-month reign, this guy, Jehoiachin or Coniah or Jeconiah, surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar and was deported to Babylon where he died, as did his mother. Then God says to the people in verse 28, he asks the question, is this man Coniah a despised, shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? The answer they should have given is, yes, he's an undesirable vessel. But we know from the records that they didn't, in essence, answer that way. They said, no, there's nothing wrong with him. In fact, history tells us that these people were living in the hope that that guy would come back into office one day. Which shows me, when a people is darkened in their understanding, they will support someone whose policies are leading them into their own demise and destruction. And world history has shown us that too. A blind, darkened, needy people will submit to the demands and empty promises of an imagined savior, even to their own demise. And in our country, we will elect to a second office. Never mind. But we have the mind of Christ. Does that mean we're better? Nope. Smarter? Nope. Seeing? Yes. When someone has the mind of Christ, then you don't believe in empty promises. You know someone who promises change, but who has no record of bringing about change. Is going to be able to do it? And you do think of that person as a, as a shattered jar, not as your hope. Can you see how the Antichrist is going to be ushered into power? Because the world is going to get sick of stuff, you know, particularly in the Middle East. People in the Middle East are sick of uh, the conflict. Some guy's going to come around. He's going to be able to pull off some victory. People, all sides are going to lay down their arms, do all the rest, prop this guy up as the Savior. Under his auspices, 
a grand new temple will be reestablished in Jerusalem. The Jewish people will go crazy. Yay, yay, we got our temple. And then he'll demand they worship him in it. Too late. Tribulation period. Hell on earth. I didn't say we've seen the Antichrist yet. But we sure have seen foreshadowings of him. Wow. If someone looks good, sounds good, and the media makes him look good, we'll believe what he says. Today it's election by media, not by character. Don't worry about it. How sovereign is your God? I just want to know. How sovereign is your God? He can take care of things. He can deal with it. He will. So then the text goes on. God calls out about the land. And I want to end with this. It's kind of a good note. Verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man. It's that king. It's Jeconiah. Write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So here's what God said. That's it for that line of kingly descent. I will curse it, for they have disobeyed me. So God is pronouncing this guy as childless, but he wasn't actually childless. He had five sons. So what does this mean? It means... In effect, as if he was childless, because God would not permit any one of his sons to succeed him to the throne. When God wrested the throne from this guy, Jeconiah, it ended with him, and God transferred the throne to an entirely different line. Okay, now that being said, I want to ask you a question. In the New Testament, how many books are there called Gospels which tell the story of Jesus. How many? And do you know what they are by name? Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of the four, there are genealogies of the Lord Jesus in how many? And what are their names? You guys are pretty unbelievable. You're right, Matthew and Luke. And those two genealogies have caused tremendous confusion over the years because they look different. And now you'll find out why. Matthew chapter 1 has the genealogy of Jesus demonstrating his legal right to the throne. Because the legal right to the throne comes through this line. The line of Josiah and Shalom and Jehoiakim and Jeconiah. And if you read Matthew chapter 1, you'll see it passes through a guy named Shealtiel and someone named Joseph. And Joseph, who was in this line of kingly descent, became the, did he become the biological father of the Lord Jesus? Ah, he became the foster father or the stepfather. So not the dad by biology or blood. But that he was the Lord's stepfather demonstrates the Lord's legal right to claim the throne because he's in the line of kingly descent. However, That line was invalidated here in Jeremiah chapter 22. God said, that's it, kiddo. There will be no one in your line to replace you on the throne. That means if the Lord Jesus was birthed by Joseph as his father, he would be an invalid occupier of the throne of Israel, right? Now move past Matthew 1 to Luke 3. That's another genealogy, but not through the line of Joseph, through the line of Mary. Now, was Mary the actual biological mother of the Lord Jesus? Yes, she was. And Mary is in the line of David. So whereas Matthew 1 demonstrates the Lord's legal right to the throne... Luke 3 demonstrates his absolute line of descent as a descendant of King David through Mary. 
He's the right candidate for the office legally and biologically. He was not fathered by Joseph. He was fathered by the Father through the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, so that he remained absolutely pure, righteous, and not in this ungodly line of kings. He is King Jesus, who has legal right to the throne and is in the biological line of descent of King David. Now I ask you a question. How many children did King Jesus have? None. Unless you read stupid books. (laughs) And you do. To your demise. Why do you? Why do you buy anything that even has a vestige of connection with concepts of Jesus Christ when you have God's word on it in 66 books? Is it boring to you? So you got to buy every popular, every... I don't want to keep up with it. And many people say, Stuart, what do you think about this? What do you think? I haven't read them. Why? When I exhaust the treasures of God's word from on high to one such as me, then I'll read the other books. You got time for all that? I don't know how many people ask me about the shack. It's causing great controversy. The shack. Why is it so important to you even to read? I don't know if it's right or wrong. I'm not gonna, I have no time. Leave me alone. But, but my point is, why is it so important for you to engage in something of such a controversial nature about God, the Father, and His love? When I have His love letter in 66 books of, listen to me. If you come back next week, and I surely understand if you don't. You'll see this passage. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream. But let him who has my word speak my word in truth. For what the straw have in common with grain? Why are you the people of God supping on straw, speculative, nonsense, instead of feasting on grain which nourishes you? Why are you reading stuff about the Bible instead of reading the Bible? I don't get it. God speaks, thus saith the Lord. Years ago, persons, millions over here would stop me. Hey, Stuart, what do you think about this latest thing? Wow, it's really the key to unlocking. It's called the Bible Code. Remember that stuff by a guy named Michael Drosnan? who's a Jewish man, a Jewish man who doesn't even know the author of the book is the key? He discovered the secret to unlocking the meaning of the Bible? And you, God's people, believe that? I never read the book. Are you crazy? I wouldn't spend a nickel on a book. Are you God doesn't operate in secrets. Thus saith the Lord. I don't need some unsaved Jewish guy to tell me how to understand the Bible. My father wrote it. It's a love letter. I know my father. You know your... Why are you... Look, the Left Behind series is super. The authors are godly men. Don't misunderstand me. Maybe one day I'll get to it, but I'm still working on a book of Revelation. What do I want to read some guy's fanciful deal about it. What is the, why do you need pablum when you could have power? Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that shatters a rock? And you settle for pablum? Some novel about the end times when I could read about the end times? I don't get it. I don't get it. It's demise of the, the demise of the church. Who reads his word in what? I could lead you astray because you don't know the word of God firsthand. I could say stuff to you. People do all the time. Jesus did not marry, marry Mary Magdalene. That's called blasphemy. And he fathered no children. Now, what's my point? I got off track. My point is, uh, 
I'm a hot-headed Jewish guy. I mean, when God gives you a love letter, oh, and you can go right to the source, why do you want to read oh, even good human literature about it? 66 books, oh my goodness. Thus saith the Lord. Not find me, catch me if you can. Good luck trying to figure me out. No, thus saith the Lord. Oh, don't you want to hear? What he has to say. Don't you want to hear? People know more about, they're great people. John Piper, John MacArthur. Don't misunderstand. These are godly people. Great, great, great. I don't want to read what they say about the Bible. I want to read the Bible. Come on. Hey, I give you a challenge. Take a fast for a year. A reading fast. It's not just a food fast. Take a reading fast. Stop reading, eating grain, a uh, uh, straw. Why don't you just immerse yourself free? Take a year. Just immerse yourself and just read and read and underline and circle and think and question and just, just no books, no aids, no this, no that, no read. You know, I'm not getting an audience with uh, this one or that one. <laughs> they don't consult me. <laughs> I, but I got an audience with the God who is, has no beginning nor any end, the Alpha and Omega, the agent of creation, the one who spoke it all into existence in the power of his word. I know him personally. I could talk to him. Come on. That's not just a book. That is the word of God. And you possess it, but don't read it. What's your problem? What's my problem? I would rather have pablum, that's why. Tell me what it says, so that I don't have to wrestle with it myself. Pablum instead of power. Power is not my word like fire. All right, so here's the deal. Since Jesus never married nor had any children, this is good news. Since he had no children, it means the kingly line ends with him. There'll never be another successor to the throne. Each king succeeded another in their line. God invalidated it because they invalidated themselves. God orchestrates, even in spite of all this evil, degradation and human sin and corruption, God orchestrates a redemptive plan through a redeemer who is pure and spotless and holy and untainted by it all. Oh, he has legal right to the throne but wasn't birthed by his forebear. He was birthed by the sinless spirit of God himself. And his only biological line confirms that he's in the line of King David. And then it stopped. He'll never be replaced. He sits sits on the throne and he laughs at the nations and you know him personally. Now that is the proper use of the word awesome. It's not awesome when you get a good parking lot spot. <laughs> it's awesome when you're overwhelmed, when you're awestruck by the fact that this king is your savior. That is awesome. And you have a personal relation and connection. It is awesome to see how God orchestrated events from before time to usher into the mix a redeemer who is sinless. And here's the deal. You are his spiritual progeny, which means his sinlessness, his righteousness is imputed to your account. Imputed, not inherent. You don't have it. I don't have it inherently by birth. We inherited the nature of all these bad guys. We just did. So by amazing grace, the righteousness of this pure and spotless lamb <laughs> has been imputed to our account. So the Father looks upon us just as if we have not sinned. Wow. I think that's called good news.
Really, really, really good news. So how sovereign is your father? To the max. How good is your father? To the max. Don't worry, therefore. Don't worry. Be salt. Be light. Take a stand. You're darn tootin'. I understand that. But don't cave. Don't live in a cave. Don't be filled with cynicism and pessimism and all the rest. Oh, no. Your father sits on the throne, rules and reigns. You are subjects of his kingdom. And his kingdom is based on righteousness and truth and love. And is his kingdom will endure forever and ever. There will be no successor to the throne. King Jesus occupies the throne before which all of us will gather and sing praises. Can't wait to do it. We'll all sound great. guy like me will sing on tune. It's going to be a great... The best is yet to come. Don't despair. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. You're not just the biggest. You're the bestest. You're worthy of all praise and honor. You're the opposite of selfish, abusive, corrupt power brokers. You came to lead by serving. You've taken the lead in serving. You've served us by dying. You serve us by living. You serve us by living in us. Awesome. Amazing grace. Lord Jesus, we can't wait to see you. Until then, we want to hear from you regularly, daily. Would you increase our appetite for your word? What you create in us a hunger for it that is not satisfied until we see you, the word of God, face to face. Oh God, would you protect us from foolish things about the Bible, fanciful stuff, dreams, fabricated, crazy stuff, when we have grain that can nourish us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being fully sovereign, for being uh, good undiminished in your goodness for rescuing us and for one day bringing us into our land of promise. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Children of the King.